Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 20 of the Early Parenting Podcast. This episode is a very exciting one for me because I got to chat to Dr. Nicole Hyatt, who is the founder and the executive director of COPE, which stands for the Centre of Perinatal Excellence. Now, the 10th to 16th of November marks Panda Week, which is Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Awareness Week. And it is all about what it says it is, raising awareness of what perinatal depression is, what it looks like, and how you can get help. And this interview covers all of that. If you or someone you know is struggling, I urge you to listen to this episode. It is jam-packed full of advice on looking out for depression and, and anxiety in the perinatal period, and it is going to be a fabulous resource for you. So I hope that you enjoy. Welcome to the Early Parenting Podcast, where we help you navigate the somewhat tricky world of parenthood so you can love the crap out of being a mum. I'm your host, Jen Butler, and I'm an early parenting consultant and a mama of two busy boys. Join me as I explore all things early parenting and deliver them to you in toddler-friendly, bite-sized lessons, because let's be honest, a toddler is probably smothering pseudo-cream on the wall as we speak. I'll be dropping my hottest tips on baby and toddler sleep, feeding, boobs, behavior, and so much more. Are you ready to find your flowing motherhood? Let's dive in. Hello, Nicole. Welcome to the Early Parenting Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I would love for you to tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and who you are and who you work for or who, what foundation you've created. Mm-hmm. Um, so give me a little bit of a rundown on yourself. Okay. So um, my name is obviously Nicole and I'm actually originally a Perth girl but now I live in Melbourne. I'm the mum of two kids, uh, two young children, and also stepmother of two children and stepmother of one and one and a half grandchildren. So there you go. Um, well, that's the modern family. Yeah. So, well, the uh, grandchildren are in Ireland, so I don't have too much to do with them. But uh, I'm all, I've always been really passionate about women's health and women's mental health particularly. And so I've studied um, many moons ago. I did a doctorate in clinical psychology, specialising in treatments for postnatal depression. And after some time doing some market research and marketing and advertising, um, in the marketing world, I then joined Beyond Blue and I was the deputy CEO there for 13 and a half years and I started at Beyond Blue when there was like three staff and when I left there was like 120 or 130. So the organisation really grew but I could see a real dedicated need for a specific focus on perinatal, so pre and postnatal mental health because the context is so different uh, to other times of life. Uh, we know that consumers see uh, these challenges as different and unique. Uh, people even see things like depression, postnatal depression, as a completely different illness from depression at other times of life. Uh, so it was really important to me to really give it that dedicated focus. And Beyond Blue had also decided that it, the area was becoming too specialised, so it was really focusing on we were getting into things like writing guidelines, writing training for health professionals, and that was sort of beyond the remit of Beyond Blue's work because obviously they were doing the whole lifespan. So in 2013, uh, with the support of Beyond Blue, I uh, started COPE as a not-for-profit startup. And since that time, we've been really, yeah, going gangbusters at looking at addressing the gaps. So we're very keen to look at where uh, things have fallen down or where the gaps are or where people are falling through the cracks. And particularly, I suppose, think about how we can use innovation to really address those gaps, um, to make sure we identify women early and men early who might be struggling, uh, make sure they're empowered with the information that they need when they need it and that the information is timely and relevant and also making sure they have access to quality information and referral pathways because at the moment, let's face it, it's a bit of a potluck whether you get someone who really knows and understands perinatal mental health and if you're struggling already going from one person to another, um, trying to find the right person, it's just 
too much. So, um, you know, these these gaps, I suppose, really reflect our project areas and where we've dedicated our efforts uh, for the past six and a half years in different projects funded by the uh, various governments. Uh. Like COPE is just such a fantastic organisation and the fact that it exists and what your mission is all about is just sings to my soul. I have, I've, I've worked as an enhanced maternal and child health nurse when I was living in Melbourne for two years and the amount I was working very closely with women and men with postnatal depression and anxiety. And what I saw was, as you said before, people like slipping through the gaps I had I, I one father comes to mind who was struggling really really struggling and being a man it is hard like men are often worse at seeking help for mental health illness absolutely and, and, and we worked with I, I worked so hard and, and this man eventually um this father of this young young baby who was you know having a lot of attachment issues with his his new daughter because of his depression he finally went to the GP and the GP just, he, he openly identified what his issues were and the GP said, oh, we'll test your vitamin D and mm-hmm. we'll go from there. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I, like I, I know the theory around why he's going with that vitamin, but, but do you think that man ever went back? Yeah, no. like exactly. His, you only get one chance. weren't met, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, and you only get one chance. And I think so So often for fathers, um, they're so busy trying to support their partners, they're trying to be the strong one, they're trying to be the breadwinner quite often, um, and they feel like they have to hold it together. And uh, so they put their needs last and um, mm-hmm. as a result they're often crumbling um, but often don't get help until, you know, they reach crisis point. And you can't, we can't afford to have, when they finally get there to the health professional, that is a huge step to be messing around and making a mistake and losing that valuable opportunity because it might only come once. Absolutely. And, you know, and then looking at it from a mum's point of view too, I know that in, you know, with with the whole transition into motherhood, there's such this blurred, um, I guess, line about understanding what's normal, what's not normal. And I know that we're going to talk a little bit more about um, the symptoms of perinatal anxiety and depression throughout, but it's sometimes it's such a blurred line and it's it can be really hard to identify that you know like when do yeah, I need absolutely. to see absolutely and there's so much going on there's so much change uh, you know, there's changes to your whole, uh, your body, your lifestyle, your identity, um, who you are, what you do, um, and and as a result, it's almost quite chaotic in that way. And so there is no normal because you don't know what normal is. You don't know um, what to expect. Uh, you can only compare yourself with other people and other people's experiences, but they're not always what they say they are. Um, and so, you know, and often we're, uh, looking at things like images and media and things and thinking, well, that's how it's supposed to be and it's not. if it's not like that, women are feeling like they're failing. Um, mm. So, yeah, there's so much going on and it's such a change at all areas of your person, you as a person. Um, so it is hard to know what's normal. There is no normal because it's all just, you know, such a big change. And mm. it's different for everyone and it can be even very different from one baby to another as well. So it's a huge adjustment. Yeah. Yeah, And that's something I can vouch for tenfold with, um, we were talking before I hopped on and we'll talk a bit about my own experience with postnatal depression throughout this interview because from one child to one, the next, massive difference, massive, mm-hmm. massive. And whether that came with a little bit of wisdom about what to expect, um, there, were, there were lots of circumstances that changed in my life between baby number one to baby number two in terms of support. I, I moved home to the country where all of a sudden I was surrounded by support Whereas with my mm-hmm. first son, it was little old me and my hubby um, yeah. in Melbourne, you know, isolated and just, you know, and then plus chucking the fact that, hello, motherhood. Like even though I was a midwife, a maternal and child health nurse, I went in, thought, oh, I'm I'm going to kill this gig. Like this is yeah. I mean, this is going to be so easy for me. Wrong. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. So my experience and, and how that then went on to impact my mental health was quite profound. So, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, well, it's like it's saying just because you know all about diabetes doesn't mean you won't get diabetes. So, or, I you know, other that. Analogy. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. Analogy. 
And like, you know, in retrospect, really, if I looked at more into the type of personality that I am, that probably could have given me, you know, a few indicators of perhaps what was to come. But, you know, hindsight's a beautiful thing, isn't it? (laughs) And that's why it's so great to have these conversations now so that people can learn from our hindsight and our um, experiences and um, also importantly just realise that they're not alone going through various challenges and struggles that might come along. Yeah, and something that I sometimes talk to my clients about, Nicole, and tell me what you think about this, I often talk about um, anxiety and depression as a bit of a continuum, as a bit of a, you know, like, like a spectrum that's, you know, obviously there's times in our lives when perhaps we are at the high end of the spectrum where we really do need to be tapping into the resources support perhaps looking mm-hmm. into medication you know the the different lifestyle changes that occur with having depression and then there's other times when you know perhaps you're not feeling at your best mentally like it, it you know it, it is I, I sort of say it is this continuum or spectrum what's your thoughts about that oh look Am absolutely I, to my yeah, no, <laughs> clinically, clinically people even diagnose people with mild moderate or severe depression or anxiety yeah. Um, and uh, just like you can have a mild headache, a bad headache or a migraine, you can have yeah. different levels of disability coming from the illness itself and obviously that impacts on the treatment that you have. Um, so I suppose one of the most important things is um, recognising it as early as possible because the faster you do get help, the faster you recover. But because, as we talked about earlier, there's so much going on at this stage of life, um, so much transition, often you're putting those early signs down to something else. So we know that one in five women experience anxiety in pregnancy, for example, but often they'll put it down to, oh, it's just hormones. Or, you know, one in seven women will experience postnatal depression, but they'll think, well, it's just sleep deprivation or it's just adjusting to a new baby. So it's very um, easy to attribute often the early signs to the changes that are going along and thinking it's just normal, it's just part of the adjustment. Um, And we know that 72% of women don't get help um, or 74% actually don't seek help until they reach crisis point. And I think part mm. of that is just hoping that things will go away, hoping things will settle down, hoping things will get better. Um, but also on top of that, there's a lot of high expectations that come with having a baby, what it's supposed to be like, um, you know, acknowledging that maybe I'm not coping or I might be struggling or I might be suffering from anxiety or depression. For many, that can feel like they're they're failing not only as an individual but as a mother. Um, and there's so there is a unique type of stigma because of that around um, perinatal mental health, which I think is different from that at other times of life. Um, mm-hmm. So all those things together make um, that step of getting help that much more tricky. Plus, you've got a, a baby there and trying to look after everyone's needs before your own. Um, those things often delay help seeking and we as an organisation need to make that process of early identification and getting the right help quickly as easy as possible and as seamlessly as possible because at the moment there are too many gaps and there are too many cracks to fall through. Mm, Absolutely. And actually I read a quote on the COPE website around the whole stigma and I'm just going to read it out. So it says on the website, unfortunately there is still a stigma around depression generally We can be our own worst enemies, especially when it comes to parenthood. We need to stop giving each other a hard time and come together with understanding, love and support. Mm. I love like that messaging. Like it's probably one of my key messaging that I talk to families about is to just like the world of motherhood could not have blown my mind or prepared me for the lack of support Mm -hmm. from mum to mum. Mm-hmm. Um, but the support in general also, but even just the support of mum to mum. And and I know personally I had an experience when I did have depression where a good friend, I'm in I'm sat, got inverted commas here, guys. Um she she gossiped about my my the fact that I wasn't coping. You know, mm-hmm. like like that was gossip. And she's supposed mm-hmm. to be a friend, and that, you know, it was like that's that's affected me beyond anything else. It yeah. actually is something because then I felt this need to put up this facade, this mm-hmm. and it's something I've let go of now. And I'm very honest with my listeners on Instagram and, and in this podcast and um talking about when I am when I am struggling mentally. Um, <laughs> yeah, when I am struggling, that's that's fine. 
um, yeah, when I am struggling mentally, I'm quite honest because I believe that honesty is is how we is one of the ways that we overcome the stigma. But what's your thoughts on on the quote and all of all of mm. that? Look, yeah, I think because it is a change of identity, and often people have they've left this other identity or world behind to go into this new world of motherhood, and they're they're wanting to be the best that they can at it. They want to be good mothers. They want every they want to do everything right. And I think that uh, the need for that is so great because you've almost left something else behind and you're trying to grab onto something to say, I'm good at this and I can do this. And I think sometimes that can almost create a little bit of competitiveness amongst women in that they're needing to prove to themselves that they're a good mother and they're a natural mother and that this mm. comes secondhand because they're needing that sense of identity and sense of role fulfilment um, and positive recognition of themselves as they come into motherhood. So I think sometimes uh, to make themselves feel better, they might compare themselves to other people, whether that's people in the mother's group or whatever. Um, and I think it can create quite an unhealthy environment of competitiveness and lack of honesty. And, um, you know, one, one of the things I've always wanted to do is think about how we can utilise those mother's groups to really try and make that commitment that we, we're all going to have good and bad days and for some people for a variety of reasons it's going to be harder and some people around the group are going to struggle and some are going to have anxiety and depression. And um, we need to, just like some people didn't have the birth that they wanted, some people didn't get pregnant easily uh, as easily as others, um, some people had troubles breastfeeding, some people get mental health problems. But if we keep on up with this uh, need to be proving to ourselves and proving to other people around us as we're sort of clutching for our new identity as mothers, I think that really can um, be very alienating for other people and it doesn't encourage that environment of support and understanding and openness um, if we're creating that sort of culture of, and it's often come from individuals themselves, I think, trying to prove to themselves and prove to other people, I'm a natural at this or I'm really good at this, which is really isolating for others who might be struggling. Mm, absolutely. I actually had a mum recently contact me through DM on Instagram saying something, um, you know, asking about whether she was the only one who had hard days. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, my goodness, no, like, no, no, no. Some people are naturally more open with their, like, I always talk, I wear my heart on my sleeve, so if I've had a bad day, everyone will know about it. But at least I air it out. I air out those experiences and I, I feel it, whereas other people internalise and we all, we are all different in our coping ability. But then on the other hand, there definitely is, and with, I talk about this a lot. I think I'm talking about it a lot recently in another podcast episode I did with, um, with Amy Cox, who is uh, talking around play. And it's all just about these images of what this perfect parenting life should be. And, and then the guilt that follows when, mm -hmm. you know, in the case with talking to Amy, we're talking about, oh, well, I don't do all this sensory play with my child. Therefore, I'm not being a good enough mum. And all mm -hmm. of these things that we should do, the social yeah. media, I love it for the connectivity. It's also probably one of the biggest precursors for yeah. where we're our expectations from. Absolutely, and I think um, I agree. I think social media uh, has exacerbated the problem. I think there's a lot of people posting that everything is perfect. Um, I know uh, psychologists who have clients and they know the struggles that they're going through but then look at their social media accounts and you know, or they somehow come across them um, and everything's perfect. It's nice. so it is um, this need to feel that you're keeping up um, and keeping yeah. up with expectations uh, but that we're putting on ourselves but also that are coming from the community. Um, and that's why I think it's really interesting. There's a lot of um, influencers who have really struck a chord by just being open and honest and yeah. um, it's, refreshing but also they are often scrutinized and criticized so it can be a very you know it can be a bit of a bitchy world out there um but it's it's really about um we don't help ourselves as women when when that happens so i think we need to be you know make that commitment that we're just going to be open and honest and understand that everyone has good days and bad days and some people for all sorts of reasons will struggle more than others it's just the way it is that's life at the end of the day, isn't it? But we do That's need to make it easier. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah, and that's actually something that um, we'll touch upon what depression actually looks like in a moment. But one thing I did want to ask you, Nicole, is what, like in your experience and in your, you know, what you've seen with your clients, what makes one mum more vulnerable to perinatal anxiety and depression than mm-hmm. another mum? Is there certain mm-hmm. things going on in their life, attributes, etc.? Yeah. yeah. Well, certainly um, the most uh, common risk factor is having a personal or family history of a mental health condition. So if you've personally experienced anxiety or depression in the past, you are more likely to relapse or have another experience around the time of having a baby because there is that um, vulnerability there and that might be caused from environmental factors, from the way you've learned to deal with situations or your upbringing or genetic factors. So um, often psychologists refer to this as the biopsychosocial model. There's biological factors, um, psychological factors and social factors, Um, and they will vary from one person to another, but certainly probably the strongest risk factor is having a personal history or less so but still importantly a family history of a mental health condition. Other things then that we know impact are things like not having access to support. So you mentioned that earlier when you had your first baby in Melbourne, you didn't have access to that support. Um, Being in a um, relationship where you don't feel safe, so family violence, drug and alcohol, obviously they're major risk factors. Um, Another risk factor is your own relationship with your own mother. So if you um, have had a not had a good relationship with your own mother, you would be more susceptible and when you think about that that's because um, when you become a mother for the first time particularly uh, there's no reference point so you often naturally go back to your own childhood and reflect on that to try and understand or relate to that experience Um, and if that was a traumatic experience or you don't have a good relationship with your mother that can often bring up very sad or negative or grief feelings Um, so that can put you at greater vulnerability Um, also if you've been abused as a child or at other times in your life so that might be physical abuse or sexual abuse uh, we know the whole experience of pregnancy examinations and birth can be um, leave us feeling very physically vulnerable Um, So people who've had a history of abuse, this can be a very uh, challenging time and also place them at greater risk of depression as well. So those are the most common risk factors. And because we know that they're risk factors, we now screen women not only using the Edinburgh scale to look at the presence of symptoms of anxiety and depression, but we also do this psychosocial risk questionnaire which looks at these questions to identify um, whether you may be at risk so you may or may not be experiencing symptoms at the time but you may be at risk because of these other factors in your your upbringing or your life or your um, genetics so that sort of flags to the health professional that you know you seem to be might be okay now but you are at risk so to keep an eye on you and that's also important and powerful for you to know as an individual um, whether you are at risk and what to look out for and understanding why you're at risk and what you can do about that to put in preventative strategies in place too. So so we talk about, for example, um, building, you know, thinking in pregnancy, thinking early about the importance of social support, looking at your support networks, being proactive about building building your village um, too because that is so important as a preventative uh, measure. Uh, but often people don't know about any of these factors, so just sort of go into it blindly and think, well, I hope everything's okay, um, with all that pressure and expectations as well. So um, it's really empowering people, and that's what, you know, we have the Ready to Cope Guide to Pregnancy and Early Parenthood that people can sign up to receive a free fortnightly email guide, really addressing these factors Um to give you insights and preventative strategies but also helping you identify if maybe you are struggling um, and um, when is it time to get help, what does help look like, what types of treatment are effective, what's safe um, and really just guiding people through that journey into the unknown. Um, And we've found from that that it's um, the guide is making women feel less alone, making them feel that realise that other people have common struggles and that they're not alone. And um, importantly for those 20 to 25% of women who did experience anxiety and depression, very importantly, um, they said that Ready to Cope was very important in terms of helping them identify and get treatment early. So 
This is an example of one of our programs and one of our offerings that's freely available to all pregnant men and women now and uh, we'd encourage people to sign up for that just so that they're empowered with that information and realise that they're not alone on their journey and that there's help available for the range of different things that they might uh, come across that they might not have expected. Mm, I love that and it sounds like it's sort of delivered in bite-sized little bits and pieces too which is so that's what the whole thing other than my interviews that's what my whole thing around this podcast is is you know families and parents have short amounts of time but they want to consume this information they want to know but when you get sent something that's like 100 pages long you're like ah I just won't touch that at all but I'll make sure I'll link to all of those details in the show notes too so that that's that because that sounds like an amazing I I I'm going to sign up to that I think (laughs) yeah so it goes from um six weeks in pregnancy up to the child's first birthday um and um we've now adapted it for mothers fathers uh Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and we're just in the process of adapting and translating it into 10 languages as well um so it's really um that's all supported by the Commonwealth Government and the men's version is uh, supported by the Victorian government, but they're free resources and really we can see that they're really having an impact on um, addressing those gaps in information because it is timely and bite-sized and relevant. That's what you know. women are saying. It's so great to get something in the inbox which is relevant to exactly the stage that I'm at rather than this big, big booklet which I think, well, that's not going to be relevant to me or it's not applicable to me right now. Mm, that's right and like working as a maternal and child health nurse some of the resources you know they hand out at all the key age stage resources amazing resources in there but it's you know big white envelope full of bits and pieces and I would love to do a poll of how many mums are actually going through and reading all of those things like amazing information there but it's just that sort of thrown at you and not you know delivered in a way that's actually like yeah I can cope with with looking at this information so that's yeah, such a I'll make sure to link to that that sounds like an amazing resource and I think that would it be fair to say that in the um so in the four-week care agent stage visit um as uh, in the maternal and child health service we do a um, mental health assessment and I think a part of the new mental health assessment is looking at the psychosocial factors of yes. women at risk yeah I was going to say because I haven't worked in the centre for a while but they were there were some you know what I would describe as heavy questions, but what mm-hmm. they are, and I think this might be really good for mums to hear, is that those you know I'm saying in inverted commas heavy questions is about determining your vulnerability. And so while they can be whack you in the face a little bit and be like, oh hi, this is hi, I'm your maternal and child health nurse. Here's these questions. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. like. I love what you said. You said it empowering yourself about knowing whether you fall into that at-risk category. That knowledge is power, I think. Yeah. And, look, the other thing that we I think is a real challenge, so we COPE developed the national guidelines which recommends the psychosocial assessment and the Edinburgh tool to look at symptoms uh, be conducted routinely, both antenatally and postnatally. That's what Australia's national guidelines are recommend um but one of the things that i suppose i've been very conscious of over the years watching is um the so much is dependent on your relationship with your maternal child health nurse or your midwife or your obstetrician uh there's so much um fear often of judgment or um how the information will be taken or used um, so we've uh, really spent our first five years at COPE developing a iCOPE digital screening platform and this has been rolled out in maternal and child health nurses in a cro- number of places across Victoria and parenting centres in New South Wales and we're really exciting. The federal government has just uh, funded us to put this into every public maternity hospital in Australia beginning next year. So this means that women and men can now be asked these questions about their risk and symptoms privately on an iPad and instantly they receive their own tailored copy of their result. Um, The health professional receives a clinical report which guides them about what to do next and what the the scores and things mean. But importantly for the women, getting their own report and for men in their own language because it's available in 13 languages 
just gives them that information and links to further information, but it's all about them and the report is about them. Whereas at the moment when you're doing a questionnaire in front of the health professional or being asked questions, um, it can be very confronting. Women are worried about having their baby removed if they do disclose that they're not coping. Um, women often talk about the fear of um, or that they feel that they're being judged by their health professional at the time of answering so all these things don't encourage disclosure at the time of screening. So we're doing all this work and policy change um, and financial investment to screen women, but if we're doing it in a way that doesn't make them comfortable, it's a waste of time. And that's really why uh, we've developed the iCOPE screening platform. So women do it on their own in the waiting room. Um, it's very private. They know they're getting a report back. The information they get back is as good as that that they put in. Um, and it's about, again, giving them that information to take away about them rather than just a generic booklet and say, well, this might happen to you or um, relying on the particular expertise of the health professional. So, you know, that's another, our iCOPE, uh, platform is something we're very excited about and proud about and uh, you know fantastic that the current government is going to put that in every public maternity hospital because those women are most at risk often and um, from the psychosocial factors um, you know we've been operating this in refugee clinics very successfully um, but also I think it's important we're moving this into and it's slowly being taken up in the private sector um, people having their um, managing their pregnancy through a private obstetrician unfortunately often there's this attitude amongst the private sector that well that's not my patients you only see those people in the public sector whereas we know anxiety particularly is very high um, amongst and these conditions affect anyone just just like mm gestational diabetes or anything else they affect both people in the public and the private sector but often there has been this attitude that well that's not really my patients um, and slowly I can say obstetricians are becoming more aware so it's important that your obstetrician is also equipped with the skills and uh, resources to make sure that your mental health is being looked at. Mm. Gosh, that um, I actually remember attending a professional development event now talking about ICOPE and yeah. it just reminded me of everything I know it was like that. It, it literally gives me goosebumps at how powerful of a tool that will mm -hmm. be because you're so right in, you know, in that women want to do some of these things privately and, and a personalised result in all of this, like what a fantastic tool to be able to help women and men to see yeah. where they sit on this, where are the risk factors because there's no, it's better off knowing where you are and to be prepared. Like, I think that if I had done something like that, going back to what we were talking about before with the with the risk factors, you know, I have I had had a past history of anxiety when I was in university. Mm -hmm. I was isolated. I had no family support living in Melbourne other than my colleagues at the, you know, local maternal and child health centre who were my rock, you know. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I had family, but it was too far away. And, you know, so I could sort of go with a few of those, like just of course it made me vulnerable and yet I was so unaware it's just bizarre that I, I didn't realize that I could be one of the statistics but of course I could have been especially with my risk for, uh, my background so yeah. moving yeah. to actually talking a little bit about what uh, perinatal anxiety and depression looks like I mm. thought we could explore a little bit about what the symptoms are and, and what what is it what are some of the key things that we're looking for that that will indicate to mum or dad all right perhaps it's time for me to speak to someone Mm. Yeah, look, I think as a, um, so if we just have a look at what anxiety and depression look like and feel like, um, often there's a bit of a misunderstanding. Often people talk about postnatal depression or antenatal depression and women go to look up information or they're given a brochure about that and they think, well, that doesn't, that's not really right. That doesn't, that's not how I feel because people often aren't aware of anxiety and there's been a lot more profile about anxiety in very recent years. Um, so if I, I'll start with anxiety, seeing we're there. Um, we all know what it's like to feel anxious or nervous before a big event, walking up the aisle, doing an exam. Some people feel like that all the time. And there's, you know, gen normal anxiety is when we're, our body is um, listing that flight or fight response to prepare for a situation. It's giving our body the resources to go into battle or to escape from danger or whatever it might be perceived to be. Um, and with an anxiety disorder, um, often that perceived threat 
is not really realistic. So people start attributing things to being more um, fear-provoking or scary or uh, than they really are in reality because anxiety, when you're experiencing these symptoms, um, they're so, they can be so overwhelming and so powerful um, that then they can take over the way that you think about it. So you think, well, something terrible must be happening. So you attribute those feelings to whatever it might be. So you start what we call overestimating or thinking or catastrophizing. We think things are worse than they or more likely to go wrong than they actually are. We think things are going to be worse than they actually are going to be because we're trying to put those feelings into a context and that can then start to distort our thinking. Um, and, of course, when our thinking's distorted, then it reinforces the feelings. So this is where the cycle of anxiety can be really overwhelming. It's absolutely exhausting. It can take over your daily functioning and your ability um, and in the perinatal context, because it is such an unknown time, there is so much uncertainty, we can see why it's a vulnerable time. And people will often start attributing those anxious thoughts and feelings to specific things. It might be safety around the baby. It might be cleanliness and hygiene, that something terrible is going to happen if I don't keep everything amazingly clean. Um, you know, it's it's these sort of thoughts that relate to the baby and people can become very overprotective and get themselves into all sorts of rituals and um, belief systems which can be very confining then um, and really start to take over their life because they can't they can't function or they can't enjoy the baby because there's always this ongoing fear that something's going terrible is going to happen. So it's very important um, to nip it in the bud and really take control. I mean, anxiety is always about taking control taking control of those thoughts, understanding those thoughts, what they are, challenging those thoughts, are they realistic, um, is that really going to happen? And by doing that, you can then, you can also address the physical symptoms. So things like breathing, retraining, relaxation, meditation, but also by addressing the thoughts and the feelings and getting them under control, you can then take, take back your control and get back um, what anxiety can take from you. So that's sort of essentially, you know, the, the psychological treatments we call cognitive behaviour therapy, for example, which we know can be very effective. For some people, anxiety is just absolutely overwhelming. They can't even uh, engage in that cognitive therapy or because the symptoms are so overwhelming. And so in those cases, um, we would recommend starting with a um, medication as a first-line treatment to get the symptoms under control and then be able to start managing the thoughts and slowly all about taking control. So there are, you know, the, this is where the guidelines is important. It's very important that we as health professionals know what with confidence we can recommend in terms of treatments. Um, first-line treatment would be psychological treatments. The next-line treatment would be um, medical treatments. Like, um, And there we know that some uh, antidepressant medications are effective for anxiety as well as depression. Um, and there are medications, groups of medications that are safe to use in pregnancy and when breastfeeding. So um, this is why it's so important that we do have national guidelines so we can feel confident. Um, Health professionals can be confident in their prescribing or their recommending treatments and patients can be confident that the treatment they're getting is safe and effective. Um, often women think, well, I'm not going to take medication because that's going to have a negative impact. I've got to try and stay off medication. I've got to come off my medication. And that's uh, certainly not always the case. Um, in fact, we know that cortisol is produced in the body when we do have high levels of anxiety um, and depression. So it's keeping that at bay as well. Um, it's, it's really weighing that up. And um, But unfortunately, you know, again, this I've got to do it all and I've got to be perfect at it all um, and do it naturally and do everything naturally, um, it isn't always the best and it's really important mm. to talk to health professionals and just know what treatments are safe and effective. So, so that's really a little snapshot of anxiety and, as I said, it's very common. One in five women will experience anxiety in pregnancy, one in five will experience anxiety postnatally. Um, so getting it early is imperative. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then there's depression, which um, so lots of anxiety and agitation uh, comes with that, whereas depression is often feeling flat, 
sad or down, not getting interest um, or pleasure out of anything. Uh, some people describe feeling very angry and irritable um, and as part of depression. Um, you're not able to get enjoyment out of things. Um, and sometimes it just feels like, well, nothing's worth it. It's such an effort to get out of bed. It's such an effort to get through the day. You've got no energy, no interest. You might eat a lot more and have increased appetite or lose appetite and lose weight. Um, but you're really just feeling like, what's the point? Or really feeling like nothing's giving you any pleasure. Um, so we know that up to one in 10 women will experience depression in pregnancy and that increases to one in seven in the postnatal period. Um, so again, these conditions are very common. It, it, they're going to affect one or two or three people in your mother's group if you've got, say, 10 people in your mother's group. Um, so it's really important that we know for ourselves but also um, know how to identify and look out for the symptoms and importantly create an environment that it's okay to have that conversation about struggling. And in terms of, you know, your question about, well, when is it time to get help, once it starts getting to the point that it's taking over and you're unable to enjoy or get through the day, um, if that feeling is lasting um, more than a week or so, um, that's, you know, clinically they would say two weeks or more, um, then I think it's a good opportunity to talk to a health professional and just, you know, have it assessed and see if you do meet the criteria um, and importantly keeping an eye on it. But we know, as I said earlier, 74% of people keep thinking, I just hope it gets better, I hope it goes away, everything's going to be okay, pushing it under the carpet, denying the symptoms, um, and then it ends up taking over them. Because they're not taking control themselves, these conditions can end up taking over them and be very disempowering, and that makes treatment and recovery take longer. And, of course, impact on your experience of motherhood um, and your ability to bond and connect with your baby and enjoy that those precious um, early months. And I can just relate to all of that so much. I when, when this podcast goes to air, I'll have released an episode the week prior talking about my personal experience with postnatal mm -hmm. depression. And But, you know, to, to go over some of those things again, what I related to as a mum myself was the, like, like you said, that disinterest, like getting out of bed for me and just, I remember just, I'd just sit on the couch in my, dressing gown and I'd just be looking at my baby like I never didn't I, I was I loved Max so much but I just couldn't be bothered like I was just I just wanted to go back to sleep I was incredibly yeah. tired like hypersomnia um, yeah. and anger and irritability that was my key symptom I would say is this anger at I was resentful towards my family towards my husband towards just everything, really, everything that I guess and, you know, the the life that I was living now um, and that was a huge symptom for me. Um, and so yeah. I think that understanding that it's not, I think I didn't cry a lot, like I, it's not like I, was, I, was, I wasn't crying a lot or but I was just flat. That That's how I would just yeah. describe it. I was sort of, you know, just this phenomenally person, you know. But yeah. the, the, the thing that was interesting too is when, when I was out and about, and I guess this is where my personality type is, that I am extroverted, so I did enjoy. I wasn't putting on a facade. I, I was generally, I was genuinely like, oh, it's good to be out, and and maybe everything is okay. But then it was when I was back alone, isolated, mm -hmm. that I mm -hmm. just, you know, I went back to those feelings. So, um, yeah, yeah, I can relate to the the way that you've described that so much. And yeah. interesting talking about the um, the line of treatment. I went down, like I, I went down the line of, you know, um, trying to do things just to help myself, like getting out for a walk and enjoying the sunshine and all of those things. And, you know, <laughs> it wasn't quite enough. Eventually I actually got to the point that I did have to go on some medication for a short amount of time. And, and yes, yeah. the fear of, like I remember thinking I was breastfeeding, like is this going to be an issue? And like a big thing for me at the end was that I weighed up, like, I, you know, it's known to be safe, even though you're always still a little bit worried. But when it's known to be safe, and then I thought, well, well, what's the other, um, what's the other option? I can't go on like this. So, mm. you know, which way are we going to go? And I still say, hands down, the best decision I ever made was mm. deciding to take the medication. My, mm. I, I like, I don't, I know that antidepressants don't work like this, but I say that I remember the day that it kicked in, and I'm sure it did. Mm. Like, I'm sure I was starting to feel better, but there was this one day, and I got out of bed. And Jen was back. I was going to go yeah. and 
do cook. I was going to like make some um, some purees for Max, and I was on the Thermomix all day, and I was out doing doing stuff. And yeah. I was like, oh, praise the Lord! Um, and from that point, I enjoyed motherhood. You know, yeah. give or take shitty days, <laughs> but you know, yeah. it was a game changer for me. So yeah. yeah, I think I love what you've said with when to act, when to you know, if you're if someone's listening to this, going, oh God, I've been feeling like this for longer than a week and I can relate to this, go and talk to someone and be really honest in how you yep. feel and what you think, you know, you need. Absolutely. And, look, we wouldn't um, think twice about taking antibiotics if we got an infection. Um, mm. So why is it any different if we need to take antidepressants for um, if we're struggling with, you know, mental health issues? Or Absolutely. So it's, it's really about perspective. Mm. Absolutely. Now, Nicole, I wanted you to tell me a little bit about the uh, fundraising event that you have coming up. Um, I'll let you you talk a little bit about that. Okay. So um, once a year we have our major fundraising event, which is called Mother Jumpers. And so this is when women uh, and their partners or men, well, last year I had all of our, a whole of our um, older senior board directors, um, friends jumping out of the plane. Uh, So really jumping out of a plane to raise awareness and um, really it's about, it's it's interesting, this is uh, an event that often women who might have struggled themselves or know someone who has struggled um, get really behind it to um, become a mother jumper for the year and that means that uh, it sort of kicks off in postnatal anxiety and depression awareness week which is the 9th and 10th of November but people can do the jump um, we do it with skydive companies around the country um, or abseiling in states that don't do skydiving and it's really about um, taking that step and raising awareness around anxiety and depression um, in the perinatal period but importantly um, the way it works is that you uh, register yourself on our My Cause Mother Jumpers 2019 page and then you get other people to sponsor you to do the jump. So for you personally it'll be the cheapest um, jump you'll ever do because it only costs you $100 um, and we've been supported by the all the skydiving companies making it cheaper than normal prices but then you get your friends or colleagues to sponsor you to do the jump and um yeah, last year we raised um, over $30,000 $30, doing the jump, which was great for us to be able to put that money into research um, and developing new digital screening products in different languages for refugee communities who otherwise would miss out on screening. Um, but, yeah, I'd really encourage you to think about uh, nominating yourself or a friend mm-hmm. and getting rallying the troops around to support you to do a mother jumper uh skydive jump or abseil in 2019 well and this is where i'm going to jump in and push it out <laughs> to the world i was talking to the cold before we started and guys i'm going to do this <laughs> i literally <laughs> have like butterflies already thinking about it but i said to nicole I was like if there's is if there's a better cause for me to do something like this for and putting myself outside my comfort zone then this is it because postnatal depression, the area of peri- perinatal uh, mental health is a huge passion of mine given my experience and is one mm-hmm. of the reasons why I started my support, you know, my early parenting support. Uh, and so I am going to do this and I'm going to be now putting it out there for people to sponsor me and better yet, I'm going to be putting it out that if anyone wants to join me that they absolutely need to get in touch with me and let's do this together because I need someone to hold my hand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's fantastic, Jen. And you should oh. see uh, I'm there when it happens, both the um, on on the days of the skydive. Um, I watch people go up. I watch their anxiety. And I say to them, you know, imagine living, feeling like this all the time. This is what one in five women experience all the time. But the sheer exhilaration um, when they're coming down and we're there when they're landing and they just say, you know, this is the best experience I've ever, best thing I've ever experienced in my whole life. Um, and, you know, it, people can go onto our website and you can watch a jump. You can see what it looks like. You can have a GoPro camera so you can actually film your jump um, and you can just see the absolute exhilaration uh, that people experience and they just say it's a really a major life event and that's really something they, they never forget and it's just an amazing feeling. 
And of course, they're they're raising funds for a good cause. Exactly, that's right. I I feel, um, I feel in my gut and my heart that this is something that I definitely want to do, and and for such an amazing cause. So. I'm going to be, yeah, I'm going to be putting it out to my audience now and saying, come on, guys, you need to sponsor me and help me do this jump, both <laughs> to support quote, and to, you know, and to support me emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> and also, look, we'll, we'll then profile you while you're, we do a um, bit of a Facebook interview around um, and write up the profile of the people who are jumping. We've got a whole lot of people this year from Kanga Training. They're right behind us this year. They're doing the jump. Um, and we profile the different people and why they're jumping and it's just a really great way to raise awareness. So I'd really encourage other people out there around the country if you uh, want to do something exciting and exhil- exhilarating and raise awareness um, and support COPE, it's a great thing to do in 2019. And you can do it any time up to the end of the year but it uh, officially kicks off on the 9th and 10th of November and if you do it with someone you know, it's a, it's a great fun thing to do. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm obviously going to be sharing everything we've discussed in our interview today on my show notes. And I'm, you know, because this this interview will, will air in the week that is um, Perinatal Mental Health Week, the 9th and 10th. And so I will make sure to promote things prior to this so that come this time, I can be looking at, you know, doing the big jump perhaps around that time. So very, very exciting. And you can even get it filmed and then put it on Facebook and people can see your, your jump. People will see, so you know, that, you know, obviously yeah. podcast is an audio thing, but the whole lip's gone blah, 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 blah. <laughs> That's it. That's it. The most, but, the most attractive you'll ever look in your life. <laughs> <laughs> but you that will be far from your mind. Exactly. Oh, my God, I can't wait for that experience. I think that, it, yeah. yeah, I think that is going to be the most liberating thing that I can, I can already sense how that's going to make me feel and I'm, a little yeah. excited for this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Nicole, yeah. I have enjoyed this conversation so, so much. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. And I really think that, I really hope that so many of the mums and listeners are, are going to get a lot out of this and just understand what they're looking for, when to get treatment, who's vulnerable, all the things we've discussed. So is there any other information you want to share on how listeners perhaps can get in touch with you or with COPE? Absolutely. Look, first port of call is always to go to the website at cope.org.au. You'll find so much information about all the challenges. So we talk about all the challenges, not just mental health conditions, but also all challenges around the time of having a baby. Um, so I really encourage people to go onto the website. Um, and yeah, if you're pregnant or have had a baby recently, sign up to the Ready to Cope guide at readytocope.org.au. And of course, then there's uh, Mother Jumpers at motherjumpers.org. Uh, so sign yourselves up or a friend and sponsor a friend and get jumping. Mm, so exciting. I'll share all of those links too in the show notes, as I said. So oh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Wonderful. Thanks for the Oh, wonderful. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me in today's episode, guys. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, please head on over to your podcast streaming app, whether that's Apple or Spotify, and leave me a review. I want this podcast to get to as many ears as possible so that other mums who might be having the same questions as you can find a little bit of information to help their parenting journey along. And you know what? While you're over there leaving a review, please feel free to subscribe so you don't miss a single one of my episodes. And don't forget to hit me up on my socials, Facebook and Instagram, at Jen Butler Early Parenting. Can't wait to bring you your next episode. I'll see you back here again then.